0: Good morning Trinity Church, my name is Doug and I am the interim pastor here during our transition and I am so thankful for God's gifting of people here at this church like with our worship team and how they lead us in worship. He is so faithful to us. Well I'm glad you're here this morning to hear from God and if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do, would you open them to the book of 2 Corinthians, it's right after 1 Corinthians, so it's easy to find. And we're in chapter six. We're gonna to start today in verse 14. Um, so while you're getting there, I would, I would like to talk to you about something that has been on my thoughts a lot lately, <clears throat> and that's uh, water filtration systems, <clears throat> right? Now I know, I know, you were probably expecting something deeply theological, and, and we will get there. But as I was looking at this passage this morning, I realized this is a good place for us to begin. Uh, If you walk through the front sliding doors of Lowe's, uh, as I do on a fair basis, Lowe's or Home Depot, sometimes you'll find a table, a folding table set up about 15 feet back from the front door, and behind it will be a contract salesperson, contracted by Lowe's to sell their product. And sometimes on the front of that table as a banner, you're going to see a banner that talks about whole house water systems. Now, just moving up here, that was not a big deal for me. And, and they would say, hey, sir, sir. And you know how you kind of try to avert the eyes and <laughs> heading to hardware, sorry, got to get over there. Um, but if you stop and chat with them, they will uh, probably begin to talk to you about hard water scaling in your home. And I've noticed in our home here in, in Yucaipa, uh, we have some hard water scaling not like this the home isn't old enough to have that amount of scaling but you know it's beginning to show up on faucets and shower heads and things like that and so it caught my attention and if you uh, talk to them a little bit more they'll tell you how hard the water is in our area now, i don't know how many of you who are uh, data dealers but uh, i went online i was curious and Actually, we don't have horribly hard water. We have what they call moderately hard water here in Yucaipa and Redlands. It's 71 parts per million of calcium and magnesium, which are the building blocks of hard water. So, you know, he'll give you all the soft-cell stuff to begin with, and then he hits you, uh, he goes for the jugular, and he says, So, have you ever considered the amount of contaminants in your water system at your house? Well, that should get your attention because it's something like this. Now, that's a representation, but, you know, as you read the statistics, I, I looked at a picture like that, you know, he shows you a picture, have you thought about this? And I'm not so ready to drink the water out of my tap anymore, because you look at that and you go, good night, what's in there? And there's all kinds of things, like uh, protozoa, um, that is in some systems, giardia. Uh, you've got uh, bacteria, salmonella, viruses, hepatitis A, that, can't, that they're filtering out of our water systems, but... They also filter out, but not completely, a lot of the chemicals that contribute to hard water systems. So, if you're still standing at the table at that point, he's going to hit you with, So, sir, do you want to install one this week and clean up that water in your home? That's when I head off to hardware. (laughs) Although, I've been giving it some food for thought because, and, and by the way, why are we talking about that this morning? You know, some of us are beginning to ho hum like, I already already got that solved in my home. Or, well, I never thought about it. Maybe I should. But this passage this morning tells us that churches today need filtration systems in their houses of worship. And we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 in a hopefully a fresh way for you because churches don't need filtration of, of our water systems. We've got a good water system here at the church. But we need it for the Uh, love that we experience in our hearts, we share with each other, we uh, share with the Lord. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he has noticed that for them, as in many churches today, uh, they have had a narrowing and restricting of their love. They have not been as compassionate with each other. They have not uh, been patient or, or kind or self-sacrificing or generous, uh, gracious toward each other. And these are all the ingredients of love. And as he looked at them, he says to them, you guys have a grave problem, a grave concern, and I want to deal with it today. So hopefully by now you found 2 Corinthians 6.14. Take a look, first of all, that at, at verses 11 through 13. Paul describes here the problem that's going on in Corinth, and I think in many churches today as well. He says, we have opened our mouths to you freely. We are communicating the word of God to you openly, without restriction. We're giving you the whole package. Corinthians, our heart is wide open. But you are not restricted or narrowed narrowed by us, but you are restricted, narrowed in your own affections. So pause there for a second. He's saying to the Corinthians, and I think he's saying this to churches today, don't be narrowed don't be restrictive in how you show your affections to each other or in their case toward paul in particular he says in return i speak to as children widen your hearts also so the corinthians in corinth were pulling back from paul and they were pulling back from each other and they they were feeling ill at ease uh, in their relationships with each other they were feeling troubled they were, they were becoming um, more and more critical and defensive in their relationships. They were spending less and less time together, and they had a diminished concern for the well-being of each other. Paul looks at their church life, and he says, there is a pullback, and frankly, you just don't want to be around each other at all. So this was a huge concern for Paul, and it should be for every believer. Um, we need to have hearts that are not restricted in our compassions, having a compassionate contraction. God wants us to be open with each other. He wants us to be reconciled to each other. He wants us to have kind and thoughtful ideas and and, and expressions toward each other. And Paul knew that if this was not resolved, if this was not corrected and reconciled in some way, that it would lead the church down a very dark path. And in fact, he says in this passage, if they don't correct it, they're going to actually lose their sense of God's presence among them. They're going to lose the sense of connectedness as a church and in some cases might not even exist at all if this problem is not corrected. So God is telling them, broaden your shrunken and shriveled hearts. Open them wide to us. And he doesn't just tell them what they need to do. He says, here's how you do it. And so that's where we get to this passage today. But let me, let me warn us up front. What we're about to look at, uh, this cure for cardiac blockage, is not a popular cure today. His course of correction for distanced affection is far from what many in our culture today would advise. This is not a popular correction in our world today, what he's about to tell us. And even some Christians today will balk a little bit at this solution for lackluster love. They're going to push back against it a little bit. So, are you ready for this? Okay, well, some of you are. That's good. (laughs) Let's take a minute and ask God to open our hearts and minds. Because what he is going to say to us today is far different than the way we have understood this passage in the, in the past. And I want us to see this together. Heavenly Father, we've gathered together today here at this church, in our homes, on the patio, the pavilion, to hear from you. And Father, uh, as a pastor, there are some passages that are more challenging to preach because they really get to the heart of what it means to be a Christian in community. And this is one of those passages today. Father, I think that we have in some way misunderstood this passage, and we've allowed its application, which is a true application in a microcosm, to be the sole application of it. And Father, help us to hear Paul's words today. Help us to hear your words that would guide us in a path that would open up the heart of our beings to each other and to you. Father, take the hardness of the world's contaminants, cleanse them from us, and help us to grow in our relationship with each other and with you. Amen. So here is God's solution to this separation from each other. And you may want to write this down. It's not a huge solution, but it is a powerful one. God's solution for separation from each other as Christians is separation. Okay? That's it. That's the whole sermon right there. Now, you're going to get more. But that's what he's saying to us. If you want to diminish the separation from other Christians, if you want to increase this sense of affection and companionship and closeness and community, you have to have separation. But the key is going to be knowing what we are to separate from. So take a look at verses 14 through 16. They'll be on the screen for us. Paul says immediately after this phrase, open up your hearts to us, his next words are, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he's saying Christians are to be separated, not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And if you've been around church long enough, you probably have heard this phrase before. You've heard this taught before. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we have to be a little careful about how we understand it because this can seem mean-spirited. This can seem unloving toward people in our world today. This can be easily misconstrued as a dislike for or a distance from non-believers in our culture today. So whatever this means, it's God's solution to the problem of diminished love among believers, and we know this is the solution because of the couplings, the bookends that we find here. I want to direct you back again to verses 12 and 13. You notice what it says there open your hearts to us. Get the flow going, the flow of love. But look also at chapter 7, verse 2, where it says, make room for us in your hearts. Now, whenever you see Paul bracketing information, so on one hand, he says over here in verses, you know, 12, 13, open your hearts to us. And then there's a passage that is right here and then over here is chapter 7 verse 2 and it says make room for us in your hearts those are two very similar statements but everything in between is designed to be connected to those things so whatever we understand about this passage it is teaching us how to do those bookends how to open our hearts to each other make room in our hearts for each other so this is really important for us to understand let's take a look First of all, he gives us four things to do. First of all, he says, be separated, but be separated from faithless forums. Faithless forums. We see in verses 14 through 16 these five statements about uh, antithetical things, things that cannot be reconciled. And this is his uh, description for us in this section about what we are to be separated from. Now, it's interesting, Paul begins this section not with a simple comment. If you look in your English Bibles, what you're going to see is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? Anybody have anything different than that? There may be a few twists or a little bit different phrasing. That's the English translation. But in the original language, it's a passionate point. He says, stop yoking yourselves together with unbelief. Apistis. Stop that. In fact, Paul is not just conversing with the church. He is becoming loud and almost shouting with them, Stop it! Cut it out! I mean, just, 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 no! That's how you read it in the Greek. Seriously, right? It's an imperative in the Greek language which means a forceful command. Stop doing this. And by the way, remember we talked about the way to know things, oida and gnosko? Oida is to know by observation. Gnosko is to know by experience. This passage uses gnosko. Stop participating in things that cause you to gain unbelief. Now, interestingly, it's not only an imperative where he's saying, hey, there are things in our, in our world today that are infecting Christians with greed and anger, immoral behavior, arrogance toward each other, and it's stripping us of our mutual love for each other, these things in the world that are infecting us. But he goes on to say, this is in the second person plural, Now I know that doesn't mean a lot to us when you just read it, but in the Greek, he would, you could say sometimes, hey, you, I didn't mean to pick you just out, but. Or you. That was the singular of the second person. Here, it's the plural. And he's saying to us, you, you all stop it. Now, does that change the way we feel about this passage? Because it should. It's a command to the entire church, a direct command that we have to be careful to not cooperate with the world. We have to be careful of what we accept as endorsements in worldly values as we absorb them into our lives. We have to be careful about embracing our cultures, activities, and ideologies as a group of Christians. Because accepting them and allowing them to impact us changes the love dynamic in our church. Does that make sense? Now, it's interesting, he uses the word a yoke. I cook breakfast almost every Sunday morning. I use a lot of yolks. This is a different kind, right? If a farmer did this right, he had great results. He would bring together two strong animals, usually of the same species, most often oxen, and he would use a curved piece of wood called a yoke, which enabled them to pull together in a manner that was equal in force And pressure, and it would prepare the soil for planting. So you have here a team of oxen. But we find in Deuteronomy 22 a a prohibition to the Jewish people that said, Don't do this. Who looks happy there? (laughs) Probably neither one of them. But this happened at times, and in Deuteronomy, God says, Don't do this. Don't take a donkey and an oxen and put them together. And it became an illustration for the Jewish people about how they were to couple themselves in culture. They're different in size. They're different in strength. The ox is vastly more superior than each other. They're different in interests. Donkeys are especially known for one great thing. Stubbornness, right? Yeah, they're not going to do what you want them to do. They're different in gait. When properly motivated, that donkey would run circles around the oxen. So you don't get a straight line. You're getting something more like this. And enjoyment. They're not going to like working together. Henry Morris, who is a great commentator on this passage, uh, passage, puts it this way. Paul is using a metaphor here from Deuteronomy 22, which forbade plowing with an ox and donkey yoked together. The clear inference is that believers and unbelievers are so different in character and interests, as well as ultimate destiny, that they should never be yoked together in situations requiring strong agreement of attitudes and goals. The prohibition is not intended to require complete uh, repudiation of all secular or charitable uh, organizations or friendships, but When one's Christian faith is in jeopardy or his Christian conduct and influence is endangered, then such connections should be severed. One can witness to the world without partaking of its beliefs and sinful behavior, he says. So what is God telling us? God is urging the church to avoid coupling itself to institutions, to ideologies, to programs, to organizations, current trends, anything else in our culture that is mismatched with God's gospel message and kingdom values. Don't be unequally yoked to unbelief. In fact, when we look at this and we say, oh, it it means unbelievers, we run into a theological problem. If we say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, we have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which says this, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. Paul is telling us we do have to associate with the world. Look at this. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, He's saying, if you know non-Christians who are like this, spend time with them. But, he goes on to say, I am writing you that you must not obey, you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slandered, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. So he's not saying don't... Spend time with the lost people in our world. He's saying, please do that. If you try to avoid that, you're going to have to leave the world. But if you find a Christian who is acting as the world is acting, don't get infected in an intimate way with that individual in relationship. Paul uses this word, apistos. We're going to throw a definition up on the screen for you. Apistos is what is in this passage. Do not be unequally yoked with apistos. And it is this, it is that which violates one's faith, what is unfaithful, false, treacherous, unreliable, or what is opposed to the Christian faith. This word shows up in the New Testament 16 times. It's a pretty common word. But 14 of those times, it's in Corinthians. 14 times out of 16, in Corinthians, he talks about unbelief. It has two applications. Number one, it can refer to a person or people who have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ, those whose minds have been blinded by Satan and who live in the world today. They can't see the gospel, and they have no faith in God. It does have that application. But I don't think that's the primary one here. What Paul writes about here is this. It can refer to an organization, an institution, an influence, an activity, a trend, or value from or with which there is a conflict of interest stemming from incompatible loyalties. Folks, this is what Paul is talking about here. Don't be unequally yoked with this. And so when we hear this aspect of epistis, we have to look at our world and say what in our world has declared itself to be in opposition to God? What institutions, what organizations, what area of influence, what activities, what trends, what ideologies are pushing back against God? He says this is what we have to be careful about. And we know it's this definition because of the five antithetical statements that occur right after this command. These five opposites are marked by three things, and you might write this down. I don't think it's in either your notes or on the screen. Together, they refer to, number one, disjointed values. Values that just don't match together. Puzzle pieces that don't fit. Secondly, disharmonious outcomes. So being involved with something in the world, but the outcome of it just doesn't resonate with God or the things of God. And thirdly, climactic clashes, where there is this... um, collision of such importance that you realize you've got to come out on one side of it or the other. So take a look at these. We're going to give you some stuff on the screen. I think they're in your notes. Here are the five antithetical statements about separation. Number one, set number one, we should keep our distance due to disjointed values. So look at the terms there. He says... What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? He's saying, look, folks, there could be nothing more at odds than doing the right thing and doing what is wrong, right? How do you bring those together? You can't. He said there's nothing more antithetical than living in light or living in darkness. How do you bring those together? They cannot be resolved. So fix that in your mind. Here's the first set of antithetical ideas. They're about values that are disjointed. You just just can't get them together. Number two, he says, keep your distance safe due to disharmonious outcomes. And look at this. The accord of Christ with Belial. The portion a believer shares with an unbeliever. The emphasis here is on disharmony. In fact, the word accord here in the English... Uh, When you translate it from the Greek as the word symphony, you enjoy going to a beautiful concert? How much fun is it when it's in disharmony? The oboe is out of tune. The harp player is just not doing it. What harmony does Christ have with Belial? Now, Belial is an interesting Old Testament word. It's the Old Testament word for chaos. It was actually used of the angel of darkness who resisted the God of light. So Paul digs back into his Old Testament morphology and ideology, and he says, what could be better than Belial, this God of chaos? What accord is there between Christ and chaos? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? By the way, this is the only antithetical statement that has to deal with a person. All four of the rest of these are ideologies. And he says, can a believer and an unbeliever ever truly share success together? Can they ever truly receive equal portions from the same venture? The answer is this resounding no. And then, ah, he finally gets to the heart of his argument in this last comment we should keep our distance due to climactic clashes he says the agreement of the temple of god with idols what agreement is there god's holy presence can it ever be in agreement with false idols and the reply is never they are as antithetical as a chainsaw to human flesh they are as opposed to each other as a piranha to a cow crossing a river they are as much at odds as a mudslide to an oakland restaurant right they're always at odds and they'll always be in competition with each other and god says i will not share your affections and your time and your focus with something that is false and empty so let's take a moment and talk about what is an idol what is an idol Dr. Kim did a great job of sharing that with us a number of weeks ago. I want to take a new stab at it. I think it is anything other than God in which we seek to find our security, our identity, and our happiness. So write those words down for yourself. Where are we looking for our sense of security? Where are we looking for our sense of identity? Who we are in this world. And where are we looking for our happiness? Apart from God. These are areas where we are seeking to find these things, and God is not infiltrated into the process. In other words, an idol is anything to which we look for that will give us an ultimate peace of mind. It will give us a settled wholeness. It will offer us a delighted feeling of happiness. But it will do it apart from God and our relationship with Him. So Steve Springstead and I sat down this week and discussed this passage. Steve, thank you so much. I've really been pondering this, and it was a great conversation for us. And he said, Doug, I have assembled over the years, I think, he said, 13 different idols. And we beat them up a little bit and added and pulled away. But I wanted to share some of them with you this morning. Because the whole concept of an idol, at least for me, can be so distanced. It's like, yeah, they had these statues in the past and they gave them food and petted them and took care of them, and that was their idol. Here's here's some of the idols for us today. Sports. We can get pretty hyped up about our teams. I have jerseys in my closet, you know, for my favorite player, and I can have great conversations about it, and sometimes sports, sports beckons us away from Sunday. It does, doesn't it? my daughters played fast-pitch girls' softball, and Lisa and I coached and managed. One of our daughters was the catcher for an all-star team. You may not realize this, but when they pitch in the major leagues, it's 90 feet away from home plate. When they pitch in fast-pitch softball, it's 35 feet. And the pitch comes in at 70 miles an hour. My daughter wore out so many catcher's mitts, She had that rare, unique ability to sit there and watch it coming at her and make the play. She was good. In fact, she got so good, she was asked to be on the all-star team for the tournament, and we said, hey, this is great. This is great for her. And then they told us the schedule. Now, remember, I'm a pastor at this point. They said the games are on Friday, Saturday, and if you win, on Sunday. And I thought, oh, man, I don't want her to lose but if she wins, if their team wins, by the way, their team in, in Girls Fast Pitch, it's not named after major league teams, it's named after fun stuff. Their team is called the Red Hots. And, and they were. So we played the tournament on Friday. Guess what? We won. Played the tournament on Saturday. Guess what? We crushed them. So now it's Sunday. What time's the game going to be? Nine o'clock. I'm one of the four coaches on the all-star team. My wife is one of the managers. So we gathered together to strategize for that part of the tournament. And I said, hey, guys, um, I won't be here at 9 o'clock. Julie won't be here at 9 o'clock. What? What would, what would keep you from this? Um, church. Oh, you got to be kidding. You, you can't take a Sunday off? You can't come and be here for this Sunday morning? I said, well, first of all, I'm the pastor. <laughs> that wouldn't look really good. But more importantly, we have a value system that says we are with God's people on Sunday morning. And we don't make an exception unless someone's in the emergency room. So as soon as church is done, we're going to book out of there, we're going to be here. And they said, okay, well, our backup catcher is going to be playing first. Tell your daughter. But well, Juliet had already agreed. So, on to our next point, right? <laughs> now, we left church as soon as we could, got there. Girls' uh, fast pitch softball is time, so you only get like four or five, maybe six innings. They were in about inning four. And it was a tight game. So, Julie had to you know, miss part of an inning before she could be qualified to get in. They ended up winning. But it was just such a statement to us. What part in our lives does sports play? How committed are we to Christ? And how committed are we to what the world values in sports? Let me give uh, some more of them to you quickly. Uh, Education. What will we do to get our kids into prestigious universities? Money. How much is enough? What will we do to get more? How much does money dictate how secure we feel? Fame. How well-known do we want to be? How many likes to our posts are we looking for to feel good about ourselves? Beauty. What procedures will we go through for it? How much will we spend on accessorizing? Popularity. How much does social media drive our identity and our happiness? Food. How many food shows do we watch? What restaurants must we eat at to be most happy? Is one of our key identifiers as a foodie? Is that who I am? Is that a part of me? Entertainment is our favorite topic of conversation the next latest movie or TV series. Recreation, is being at the happiest place on earth a fetish with us? Do we spend large amounts of time and money on getting away? Sex, are we driven by our sex drives? Is viewing pornography a higher value than loving my wife? Is hooking up a weekend hope? And folks, even church, as odd as that seems, do we spend more time doing things at church than being still before God? Are our feelings of happiness connected to how well the church is doing? The church is doing great, I feel great. The church is not doing good, I feel bad. Church is doing great, I feel great. You know that roller coaster? Folks, I have to wrestle with these things just like you do. And over the years, I've had to ask myself, Doug... What most determines your security, your identity, and your happiness? And I have wrestled with the gods of money, and success, and sex, and entertainment, and even church. For one of my birthdays, when my girls were probably in elementary school, I was opening up the birthday cards, and you know how kids scribble at the bottom in their own handwriting? Open up these birthday cards, they've got these wonderful sentiments, love you dad, you know, so glad you're my father and all that. And then one of my kids wrote at the bottom of their card this line, Daddy, when are you going to have time to play with me? Oh, gosh. It crushed me. I talked to her about it this week. I said, do you remember that? No. Thank God. Thank <laughs> <laughs> I realized I was spending too much time at church and that's where my identity was, that's where my security was, and somewhat of my happiness when things were going well. And folks, God just says to us, are there idols in your life? What gets more of those three things than God? So number one, and and by the way, the other three points are quite a bit shorter, (laughs) but I felt like we needed to lay some groundwork. Number one, be separated from faithless forums, anything that is opistus, that the world has out there floating around, and we buy into it, and it begins to affect our love relationships. Number two, be separated. Why? Because we are God's holy place. Look at that second half of verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said... I will make my dwelling among them, I will walk with them amid them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Folks, just a quick aside. What do we call this room here at Trinity? Okay, I'm hearing a variety of responses. All right, some of you are shouting them louder. (laughs) We call it a sanctuary. Some churches call it an auditorium, big church. It's a place where we go and worship God, a worship center. God says to us, folks, you are my sanctuary. If someone said to you, where do you live? I would say 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And by the way, it's one of the reasons we bought our home. <laughs> so easy to remember, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, Bella Vista Drive in Ucaipa. That's, that's where I live, right? If someone asked God, God, where do you live? He would say, You. You, you're my holy place. You're my sanctuary. Years and years and years ago, sanctuary used to be um, a place where you could go to find hope and help and safety and security. And folks, by the way, that's why churches call this room the sanctuary. Because this is where we would find those things in the Middle Ages. You could run to the sanctuary and find those things. But God says in a very real sense... You are my home address. And look at these three statements. They're all, by the way, they're all from Leviticus 26. This is where Paul begins to just deep dive back into the Old Testament. And he says, I will live with them, Leviticus 26.11. I will walk among them, Leviticus 26.12. I will be their God and they shall be my people, Levit- Leviticus 26.12. By the way, Leviticus is a great companion book to 2 Corinthians Because Leviticus teaches us how to walk with a holy God. That's the whole purpose of Leviticus. So, how can we be good VRBOs for God? Places where he's going to dwell. Number three, be separated by leaving Babylon behind. Look at verses 17 and 18. This, This is, again, a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah 52. Go out of their midst... Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you'll be the sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Isaiah is writing to the Jewish people leaving captivity. So I want you to get a framework for a second in your mind. So you ready? You've been in captivity for 70 years. Those 70 years started the moment the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. That's the end mark. Seventy years go by, you've been in captivity for two generations. You have kids who have been born into captivity. And you've learned the Babylonian way of life. You've learned the language. You've eaten their food to some degrees or another. You've learned the politics of Babylon. You've understood how people value things in Babylon. And now God says, I want a new temple. Go back to Jerusalem. And if you will leave Babylon... And touch nothing unclean. Bring yourself back to Jerusalem. I will be Ty from extreme home makeover, uh, makeover. Welcome home, Israel. Welcome home. And God says to us as a church today, look, you've got to come out of Babylon. You've got to come away from the culture. You've got to separate from its secular ways. You've got to be alert to its corrupting values. And if you do... God will welcome you back into this family setting. He will, the, the Hebrew here gives us a sense of, I will be your daddy, and you'll be my sons, and you'll be my daughters, and, and we'll have this family setting again. So, folks, let me ask you what kind of father is God? How would you describe God? What would be some adjectives that would come to your mind? Faithful? Loving? A little louder? Holy. Wonderful kind, patient. We, we could have so many books written about the character of God, but you know what? God comes back to this one quality of love. And he says, look, if I'm going to be your dad and you're going to be my kids, what we're going to learn about is how to be loving. First John 4, 8, right? Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. He is actually the definition of For love, and anything short of this quality in our lives, if we are less loving toward each other, indicates some level of cultural contamination going on in our hearts. There is some calcification happening in our hearts if love is not the expression of our lives, because God is love. And if he is going to be our dad, guess what? He's going to teach us how to love. He'll welcome us into that environment. So number four, what do we do at this point? We understand we don't want to have this gradual constricting and, and narrowing of our hearts toward each other and God. How do we change that? Fourthly, be separated to be cleansed and completed in holiness. Chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Since we have all of these promises of what God will do for us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The Greek word here, for cleansing is catharsis we use it a lot in psychological circles but it's an agricultural term that means to prune to prune beloved let us prune ourselves from every defilement of our body what our bodies engage in our spirit what we crave and desire and it will bring holiness to completion as we fear God in our backyard we have eight kinds of fruit trees We don't have a huge backyard, but we have a 40-foot strip, four feet wide, and I said to Lisa, we're putting in fruit trees. Where are you going to put them? Well, we got this 40-foot-long strip. So we have, beginning at this side, avocado, pink lady, apple, Fuji. I'm going to see if I can get these right. Cherry, Bing cherry, peach, nectarine, mandarin, lemon. Yeah, didn't have room for a fig tree, but I would have loved that. Now, this season, first season we've had them, we got peach and nectarines, and now we're getting apples, right, apple season, Oakland, but our apples are rotting on the, on the tree, and I'm thinking, this isn't right, they're turning all crusty on the outside, and inside they're black, and so I started Googling rot, apple rot, do you know what I found out? One of the best ways to correct that? Prune the tree back. Give it more air. Make sure they're not touching each other as they're growing. Change the environment. And that's what God is doing here. He says, folks, we need to prune some things back. If you want to be thriving and healthy and produce good fruit in your relationship with others and God, you need a new environment. So here's God's prescription. He says, I promise, if you'll do this, I will be that loving dad to you. I will lead you into a deeply caring, loving life. Examine your bodies. Where are you spending time? What are you engaging in? Just this physicality of life. Reflect on your spirits, the things that you want and that you crave from life. And come to some conclusions. Where do I need to trim back my worldly security, my worldly identity, my worldly happiness? And reconnect it to God. And he says simply at the end of this passage, do you stand in awe of me? Are you inspired by God's care for you? Are you happy with God's love for you? Do you care for the promises of God or the character of God? If you don't, you won't live out of respect for God, you won't take action here. But he says, if, if we are awed by the magnificence of God and the goodness of God and the patience of God and the strength of God and the wisdom of God for us, if we have this deep respect for God, then he will do all of these things because he wants us to be uncontaminated, healthy, and producing good fruit. Let me end with uh, Psalm 126. So my wife and I, in our devotional times together in the mornings after breakfast, are reading through the Psalms. And I think I've shared that before, but Psalm 126, 1 and 2, capsulizes what God will do for us when we pursue Him. It says, when the Lord brought us back to Jerusalem, so they left Babylon, they came back to Jerusalem, it was like a dream come true. How we laughed, how we sang for joy, And the other nations around us said, the Lord has done great things for them. And we said, indeed, He has done great things for us. How happy we are. Lord, make us prosperous again. Restore our fortunes as the rain brings water back to dry riverbeds. Boy, we pray that for here in a tangible sense. But in a spiritual sense, God, let those who weep as they plant their crops gather with joy. Those who weep as they carry the seed come back singing for joy as they bring in the harvest. Trinity Church, God wants us to grow in our love for each other, to get rid of the contaminants, to open up the paths of our affection for him and for each other. So would you pray with me this morning? Let's do a sanctuary check together. Heads bowed for just a moment. Are are we willing, as God's people, to separate from faithless forums? Do we understand that we are God's holy place? Can we leave Babylon behind? If we do, we will find our God to be our loving dad, caring for us, cleansing us in ways we cannot even begin to dream of. Father, we started out this message just reminding ourselves that this cure for hard hearts is not a popular one today. Father, it's, it's a time in our world history, and I, I think this has probably been true in every era, but we feel it today, that the world beckons to us and invites us to participate in its agenda, its ideologies, its practices. And at times will criticize us for separating from those practices But God, this is exactly what we need to do. Not from the lost. God, we need to connect with them regardless of their condition. You've told us that. But from the things around us that have declared themselves to be without God. Help us to be discerning, Father, every one of us. Help us to see the idols in our lives, each one. And Father, as we identify these things and as we seek security and identity and happiness, may we find it most of all, Lord, in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.